sure you will have, and that is because of whatever reason. We'll make it a good reason that you've, you've changed geography, you've moved to a new location, and you need to find a new church. You need to find a church in which you, with, with which you will gather. Uh, I have, in my lifetime, I've gone to any number of churches. Uh, many times it's just visiting a church. But to actually be a part of a church, I've got a pretty good variety of those, too, over the years. When we've gone to see my wife's family in Delaware, which I've been doing now for really 40 years, uh, there's sometimes, if I usually, ideally, I try to find like a, a small church. Uh, sometimes I've been a part of like a, they started off as a Bible study, and they become a church, and I keep going back to the same one as long as I can just to see the development, what happens. Uh, Sometimes it turns out it seems like pretty well. Sometimes it really doesn't turn out very well. Uh, and, and I always think they started well, but because of a variety of circumstances, I think they become less committed to the gospel or things that are most important. But finding we've probably all got crazy church stories. I've got crazy church stories, uh, some very good, some very bad. I'm sure that some of you do as well. So imagine you've moved to a new location, you're trying to figure out what church to go to. It's a little bit easier nowadays because you can look up websites and, and uh, get some idea there. Back in the old days, you just turned to the yellow pages and, and you got just a little bit of information there, which wasn't very much. Or maybe the label was a little bit more important, where that church was listed in the yellow page, what denomination or no denomination might be an attraction or not an attraction for you. But it was more difficult back then. Let's imagine you picked a church. This Sunday, you're going to go to this particular assembly. And you go, and, and you return home, and a friend from back at your previous location says, knows that you were looking, and Maybe you had some questions, and they're like, so what did you think? How did you like the church? And you're like, it was wonderful. It was better than I imagined it could possibly be. And your friend says, well, what made it so wonderful? And you begin, you think about your church experience, and you're like, well, for starters, when, when they gathered, they, they seemed to be so intentional and engaged. And they're so, they're so wanting to. Do something. And it's not just busy activity. They are seeking God. They are desiring the presence and the blessing of God. When you walk into that assembly, you just have this sense that they desire God's blessing in their life. And when they open the word, God's word, the scriptures to them, they delight in it. It's not a matter of, oh, now we got to do the Bible study part. They delight in what God reveals in his word, the doctrine, the truth. The gospel, they delight in that. And it's not that they delight in the word of God as if it's an end to them itself. It's not just that they worship uh, words on a page. They delight in the word of God because they delight in God's presence. They delight in the presence of God. And that's a good thing. And the last thing would be that they're faithfully asking and seeking God for his direction in their life. What would you have us to do as they seek God's will for them? It sounds like an ideal church. But if you were to tell this story to Isaiah, Isaiah would say, not so fast. Because it turns out, Isaiah chapter 58 starts off with what sounds like an ideal assembly of God's people. And Isaiah chapter 58 starts off, cry aloud... Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. 
Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Same church? Mistaken identity? How is it that one person could come away from this assembly thinking it's so wonderful, and the Lord calls his prophet Isaiah to call them out for their sin? What happened in this particular assembly? Now, I'm kind of applying it. Uh, as I talk about a lot, you know, us looking for a church, if you're looking for a church, and I don't recommend that, by the way. But, you know, in the original setting in Isaiah 58, it's talking about the people of Israel. It's talking particularly about the Jews in Jerusalem. That's the assembly that we're talking about. It's, it's that group of people that it isn't as good as it might seem. So in your bulletin, there's the brown insert that has the scripture reading from David Suchet from the New International Version. And I think I... Did I lose mine? Well... Are you going to borrow somebody? I feel bad. I should have one. At any rate, Isaiah chapter 58. Listen to the way David Suchet reads this story or this particular chapter from Isaiah 58. Isaiah chapter 58 Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked to clothe them, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noonday. 
The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So Isaiah, the Lord, sees a different problem with this assembly of his people in Jerusalem. Let's begin breaking it down. Let's start off with, there are, the Bible, one of the themes in Scripture, one of the repeated patterns in Scripture is there are two types of people who do not know God. One type of people are the type of people you find in Romans chapter 1. And it starts off when, when Isaiah chapter 58 starts off with, cry aloud, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Because it's, he's using words like transgression and sins, you... I almost expect this catalog of, of trespassing God's commandments, or I expect a, a catalog of offenses like you would find in Romans chapter 1, things like, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's, that's what I almost expect the Isaiah to, to charge Israel with. But that's not what he charges them with. It's, they're not in Romans chapter 1. The problem in Isaiah chapter 58 is Romans chapter 2, which is a completely different kind of sinner, which is a sinner that is equally estranged from God, Savior, Redeemer, Creator, equally estranged. One is very immortal, immoral, and not caring. One is very religious, very pious, very sanctimonious, very ethical, at least on some level, and yet they're estranged as well. Jesus told a parable about a father with two sons. The younger son is often termed the prodigal son. The younger son said, Father, I want my inheritance now. And his father gave him his portion of the inheritance, and he went out and spent it on, spent it on wine, women, and song. And he found himself destitute and broken. That's Romans 1. Somebody that didn't care for his father, he, he went completely against everything, all of his father's values. He disregarded his father's love and his care, and, and he humbled himself and came back to his father in repentance. And then there's the older son, who's the Romans 2 type of sinner. The Romans 2 type of sinner, the older son, is also estranged from the father. 
The older son thinks that his relationship with his father is a bartering relationship. That I do certain things and you give me certain things. And it's this back and forth, I earn what I get. I've earned my keep. But the elder son is also estranged from the father in that story. Two types of sinners. In Isaiah chapter 57, if you'll go back to verse 3... Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 3, you have the first sin problem. It reads, But you draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks, under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys, under the clefts of the rock. In in, uh, Isaiah chapter 57, you've got Israelites who are living idolatrous, adulterous lives. They're completely immoral. And in Isaiah chapter 58, when they gather for worship, they look down their noses at those sinners in Isaiah chapter 57. In fact, Jesus tells another story in Luke's gospel. Two men went to the temple to pray. And the ones in Isaiah chapter 58, the Pharisee lift up their, their eyes to heaven and it says, they thus he thus prayed with himself. Which is very similar to what Isaiah 58 said. Because Isaiah 58, the Lord says, do you think I'm going to hear your prayer? You're praying to yourself. I don't hear that prayer. In Luke chapter 18, he thus prayed with himself, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I live this good moral life. I pursue these good moral things, and I'm not like that Isaiah 57 sinner. I'm not like that Romans 1 type sinner. I'm not like that tax collector. But neither sinner knows the Father. Charles Spurgeon preaches a message on Isaiah chapter 58, those first couple verses. He he lists ten different ways that we can hear the word of God. That when the word of God is read by us in our own individual lives, whether it's preached in a local congregation, there are ten types of listeners. I'm not going to go through all ten. I'm only going to give you one because then I won't have any, I won't actually be able to work through the text on my own. But I do want to start off with his introduction to his sermon, and then I want to give you one of the types of ways people hear a sermon. He starts off this way, Charles Spurgeon. It is a very pleasing sign when people like to go up to the house of God. I do not know of a more beautiful sight than the present congregation. He's looking out at his own congregation. He says, I know of no more beautiful sight than the present congregation, with every seat occupied, and some people even willing to stand to hear the word preached. We take delight in seeing persons anxious to get in to hear the word. I know that there are some here who would not be absent from the assembly of God's people on any account. Yet, my dear friends, you who are most regular hearers of the word and who have been so far and have been so from your childhood, need to be warned that the mere hearing of the gospel will not save you. A, and the continuous hearing of it may increase your responsibility and do nothing more. If you are hearers only, it may come to pass that at the last, you will have heard for the worse and not for the better. For the only record that will remain of all those Sundays and of all those sermons 
will be that you have just so many times willfully hardened your neck and continued in rebellion against the tender mercy of God. And then he goes through and lists ten different hearers of the word of God. The first one that I thought was interesting is he describes them as there are some who get no good out of the hearing of the gospel because their hearing is soon followed by forgetting. Hearing that is followed by forgetting. I like the way he describes it, so this is the one I'm going to share with you. Charles Spurgeon says, It is the truth that they hear, and for a time they hear it with considerable attention. But it is only for a time. They regard the exercise of hearing as being confined to the time which the sermon occupies. And with some, the shorter that time is, the better they like the discourse. When the sermon is over, it is done with as far as they are concerned. They may happen to remember that they were at such a place on such a day and heard a sermon from such a text, but that is all they remember. So it's an engagement, engagement for the time. It's listening well for the time. And then when it's over, it's over. It's just an event. It's just a part of life. So as we consider more closely Isaiah chapter 58, I want to open us with another word of prayer that we would listen closely. God, our Father, I thank you for Isaiah's vision. I thank you for his prophecy. I thank you for the gospel that he preaches and the warning that he utters. I pray, God, that this would enter into our hearts, not just for a time, not just for a season, but as we are confronted with the terms of who you are in light of who we are, in light of our need of grace and forgiveness, that we would be hearers that would humble themselves and cry out for your mercy, receive your forgiveness, and live a life that is changed because of it. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. So Isaiah, chapter 58, verse 1. I want to pace myself here. We're, we're doing our, our entire uh, series of messages, started with chapter 40, and it's going to end with chapter 66. So we're doing 27 chapters. In those 27 chapters, there are kind of three divisions. Each division starts off with a big announcement. So if you were to go back to Isaiah chapter 40, and since you don't have to turn far, assuming you're in Isaiah to begin with, it should be easy to do. Isaiah chapter 40 starts off with a big announcement. And the announcement here is one of grace, and it's of comfort. So Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And then verse 2, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. So Isaiah chapter 40 starts off with a very tender message. It ends in chapter, the end of chapter 48. The end of chapter 48, verse 22, the very last verse. It starts with comfort. The first section ends with, there is no peace, says the Lord for the wicked. So comfort is pronounced, but for the wicked, there is no comfort. There is no peace. The second section is Isaiah chapter 49, starts off with, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. So the servant of the Lord, the one who will take away sins, the one on on 
Because of who he is and what he's done, forgiveness is received and accomplished. And the message goes out, not not just to Jerusalem, but to the farthest isles of the world. The world's hope of salvation, of peace with the living God, is in this servant. And the message goes out in chapter 49 and verse 1. But it ends with the last verse of chapter 57. The last verse of chapter 57 reads... There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. The message goes out to the ends of the earth. But for the wicked, for those that are stuck in their rebellion and unrepentance against God, in spite of anything that he's accomplished in the person of his son, they receive no peace. Now the third message is is less this message of gospel, less this message of grace and comfort, and now it's a message of confrontation. Starts off, I've read it several times, cry out, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet. The New Jerusalem Bible translates it this way, shout for all you are worth. Shout for all you are worth. That's Isaiah's task. I want you to give it everything you've got. Most of us, most of the time, never give it everything we've got. I don't. On very rare occasion. I, I limit myself. Uh, in worship, I'm, I'm not giving it everything I've got. There's other people here. And if I'm completely by myself, Cindy's gone shopping, nobody else is in the house, I may, I may give a song everything I've got. I'm more likely to then because nobody else is around. We limit ourselves. I, I ride a bicycle. Everybody knows I ride a bicycle. And, and I try to do, uh, I try to be pretty fast on a bicycle, especially in certain segments. But do I give it everything I've got? I could always give more. I just could. Ultimate Frisbee, I'm competitive. Rich is competitive. We're not good for each other. We hopefully won't wind up at the same nursing home. It would just be ugly. <laughs> but, but do I give it everything I've got? I, I, you always, I always hold back something. I mean, I, I'm reserved enough. I care enough what people think or, or how I might come across. I just, you, we just don't give it everything we've got. Isaiah is tasked with you've got to give it everything. Hold nothing back. Why? Because it's that serious. It's that important. His people are ready to miss something that is their life. That is what all the prophets have been building to. And they're going to miss it. Because of their religion. Because of their piety. They're going to miss the forgiveness and salvation of God. And so Isaiah is tasked with this task. It reminds me of Jesus in John's Gospel, chapter 7. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus cried out too, a message of salvation in John chapter 7. Isaiah is to cry out this message of, of, of exposing the people's sin because they are so comfortable with their religion. They're so comfortable with their worship. So what is Israel's theology? What is their religion? Their religion is that they, they do these certain things. It's a bartering type of religion, like I told you. They're like the Pharisee that went to the temple to pray. They do these certain things. They expect God to reciprocate in kind. 
Based upon what I've done, based upon my, my morals, based upon my worship, based upon my songs, based upon my prayers, based upon what I'm doing, I expect a certain result. It's kind of like uh, also in the parable of the prodigal son. Let me read to you the older son. Remember the younger son, after squandering his inheritance, comes back to his father. His father welcomes him, runs to meet him throws a a big feast for this younger son who was lost, but now he's found. And then we read these words about the uh, older son. Now the older son was in the field. And he came and drew near the house. As he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing. So they weren't Baptist. And he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed a fatted calf. Because he has received him back safe and sound. But the older son was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, and this is Isaiah chapter 58. He answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And the father said to his son, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The older son is like, Don't you see what I've done? I've fasted, I've prayed, I've served. I've always been obedient. I've got nothing. And the father's like, you've got nothing. All that I have is yours. It's all yours, but it's not earned. It's not because of what you've done. It's because of who I am. And the older son is, is missing it all. And the, and the resolution to that story is not told by Jesus. Because the older son are those Pharisees and those scribes and those religious people. What will they do with this one they call the Christ? Well, they crucify him. But the story isn't told to its resolution in Luke chapter 18. So Isaiah is tasked with, with confronting these people with their sin. Who have all, this religi- all these religious symbols. Now this only by far extension does this apply to America. But just to give you some sense of how it applies to America. You know, on some level, every pretty much every culture, unless it's, I guess, communist and they're officially atheist, but every culture has its own religion. So America has some persona of religion. You know, I, if I had coins, coins are worth so little, I generally don't carry them in my pocket anymore. But on your coin, it says, in God we trust. In schools, they still mostly, I think, still indicate, or they still pledge of allegiance. One nation under God. Congress and state legislatures open in prayer. The Supreme Court opens with, God bless the United States in this honorable court. In our culture, when somebody very famous dies, and maybe it's going to be uh, on some TV channel, they'll probably still sing Amazing Grace. Those are all religious symbols. And on some level, they could all be good things. But sometimes it decries the true state of our heart. It kind of really doesn't represent really where we're at as a nation. Sometimes it may not represent really where we're at as a church. That's the task of Isaiah. So there are two beholds in chapter 58. 
two beholds. The second behold is in the end of verse 3. It says, behold, the Lord says, behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Verse 4, behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. What's the problem with this religious group in Isaiah chapter 58? I, I mean, we could read the verses again and say, well, if you read the verses, I know what the problem is. But, but if you look at it as a whole, if you kind of analyze the problem, the problem is they've compartmentalized their faith, their religion. For that one hour, for us, for an hour, two hours, however long you're here on a Sunday morning, that's the extent of our worship. That's the extent of our religion. For them, they gather on the Sabbath day uh, to worship, to pray, to offer the appropriate sacrifices. It's all compartmentalized. It doesn't carry over to the rest of the week. It really hasn't changed their behavior the rest of the time. I want to tell you, compartmentalizing your faith isn't right. The Bible synthesizes it all. If Christ is Lord, he's Lord of all over every aspect of life, over every area of life, over every interest of life. He must be Lord in all of those areas to receive him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. John Piper puts it this way. John Piper says, The the authenticity of our worship on Sunday is shaped by our justice on Monday. The authenticity of our worship on Sunday is shaped by our justice on Monday. And then he kind of tells the famous story. Everybody more or less knows it. Uh, The black preacher, I don't remember which one. I didn't bother to look it up. But the black preacher talked about, you know, on Good Friday, the day Jesus died on a cross. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. You know, and... And I always, personally, it's like one of my own little pet peeves. I really don't like it on Good Friday when Christians are like, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And I'm like, let's just embrace the darkness of Friday. You know, I know Sunday's coming, and I know that's what makes Good Friday good. But I think sometimes there's value in experiencing what it costs the Son of God to shed his blood that sins would be forgiven. But we know it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And John Piper says, you know what? We need a new saying in the church. It's Sunday, but Monday's coming. Monday's coming. How authentic was our worship today? You know, we just sang how deep the Father's love for us. What does the Father think about the song we just sang? We'll find out tomorrow. We'll find out what the Father thought of that song. What did the Father think about the prayers that have been prayed for Afghanistan? For a family that's lost a a family member. What does the Father think about our prayers? Well, we'll find out on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. Our worship today is evaluated by what happens the rest of the week. Because if our gathering on a Sunday doesn't change the rest of the week, God's not very impressed. And God would just as soon send Isaiah to our church and say, You know what? For all your piety, I don't see any difference. I don't see any concern. Love for your neighbor. So what does God want? He tells you exactly what he wants. Verses 6 and 7. 
He talks about, in Jerusalem's context, loose the bonds of wickedness, undo the straps of the yoke, let the oppressed go free, break every yoke. Those are all related to the commandment, you shall not steal. I've told you that Dr. Greer taught me, he contended, and I believe he's right, that the sixth commandment, thou shalt not steal, was originally designed primarily for rich people, not poor people. In our culture, we think thou shalt not steal means poor people shouldn't take from the rich. But in most of the world, most of the time, it's rich oppressing the poor. They're stealing from the poor. They're wringing every last dime out of the poor who are least, uh, have the least ability to withstand the oppression. And so God addresses that by loosing the bonds of wickedness, undoing the straps of the yoke, let the oppressed go free. For the Jewish culture, living under Mosaic law, every 50th year was a jubilee year where all debts were forgiven. All debts were forgiven. He goes on, he talks about share your bread with the hungry, bring the homeless poor into your house. When you see the naked, cover him rather than hiding yourself. That's what God expects of his people after worshiping on any particular given day. Well, as Is the Bible really now teaching in Isaiah chapter 58 that our relationship with God is based upon all this social activity? Does we're concerned with a biblical social justice as we're concerned for our neighbor that that's how we become the people of God? It can't be. The truth of the matter is it's always been we're saved by grace through faith. So a very important verse would be, and I'm going to read it to you, it's Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, which says, without faith is impossible to please him. Without faith, God doesn't care about my prayers. Without faith, God doesn't care whether I'm relieving the poor, or it's not, it's not improving my standing before God. It starts with faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that God exists, and he's the rewarder of those who seek him. It starts with faith. Salvation is by faith. And then, after after you've established that in in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, without faith, it's impossible to please him, then you find out what people of faith did. Abraham and Noah and Enoch and and Sarah and, and this list of individuals in Hebrews chapter 11, these unbelievable things they did because they had faith in God. It's not the things that they did that gave them the relationship. It's because they had faith in God, it inspired the relationship. It inspired what they did. There's another very interesting passage. It's uh, Jesus' teaching before his crucifixion. It's found in Matthew chapter 25, and it talks about final judgment. It starts off this way. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people, one from the other, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Um... I'll just keep reading. Uh, but he will, uh, he will place the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. Sounds like Isaiah 58. 
I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now my point in that because I know you've heard that text and I know you know the story, is that they were doing these things and they weren't saying, now God, are you seeing what I'm doing here? Because I expect a certain reward because that's what they're doing in Isaiah 58. Well, we're fasting. You're watching, aren't you? I'm fasting. I'm praying. I'm pious. I'm making these moral decisions. You're paying attention, aren't you? Because I I expect a reward like the older son in the story of the two sons. They're like, when did we even do this stuff? And the Lord is like, in the, in the, when you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Their relationship was based on faith, on love. It wasn't based on their performance. It wasn't based on what they did. But because they had their relationship, it affected what they did. All right, let's keep going. Um, the results, the rewards of having a right relationship with God are described in verses 8 to 12. These are for the people in Jerusalem. Uh, it's, it's language that is meant to mimic the blessings of Leviticus. It's language that are meant to portray the full covenant blessing of when Israel lives under the covenant relationship that God had established with them. So it uses words like, verse 8, then your light will break forth like the dawn. Your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. And then it's very interesting how verse 9 starts. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. Remember the progression? Go back to verse 3. They're saying, well, why have we fasted and you don't see it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? And the Lord then answers in verse 4, the last part of verse 4, the Lord says, well, fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. I don't care that you're fasting the way that you're fasting. I don't care that you're praying the way that you're praying. I don't care that you're singing how deep the Father's love is for us the way that you're singing it. I don't listen to that. But if you follow this course of action, if you understand the relationship, if you understand what I've done in the person of my son who bears sin and takes it away, if you understand that and it now changes the way you live, then he says in verse eight, 9, then you'll call and I will answer. In fact, you will cry and you know what I'm going to say? Here I am. The Lord is going to say to his people, here I am. That sounds like Isaiah in chapter 6 where the Lord revealed himself in all of his glory, or as much as Isaiah could stand in Isaiah chapter 6. And then the Lord says, and who will go for me? And Isaiah's like, here I am, sign me up. Can you imagine the Lord God saying that to his people? Here I am, I am here for you. But not so long as you think a relationship with me is based upon your merit rather than my son's merit. And then it ends, chapter 58 ends with a reference to the Sabbath in verses 13 and 14. 
And the way that plays out is verses 6 and 7, and as you develop those verses, what they're not doing so far as their care for the oppressed and the needy in their lives, just like that can be measured in verses 6 and 7 to demonstrate their love for neighbor, their their uh, adherence or devotion to the Sabbath demonstrates their love of God for the people in Jerusalem, for Israel. It's part of their covenant. The Lord made his Sabbaths known to his people in Nehemiah chapter 9, is the way Nehemiah recounts it. And so by observing the Sabbath, they're demonstrating their love for God. By caring for the poor and the oppressed, they're demonstrating their love for their neighbor. Both can be measured. Both can be measured. Both can be seen. Both are visible. So he tells them to observe the Sabbath in a right way. It's a day of celebration. It's a day to delight in. It's not a day of drudgery. Where did Israel come from? In the Old Testament, as you see, as you see this people uh, become a nation through the Red Sea, God takes them out of Egypt where they were slaves. Do you think they had the Sabbath off when they were slaves under Pharaoh? I don't think so. But God delivered his people. He's their redeemer. He set them free. They now have a day to celebrate deliverance. We celebrate Independence Day, July 4th, once a year. They celebrated their independence every week. We are a free people. We've been liberated by God. Look what he's done for us. Look what he's promised yet to do for us. We celebrate it every week because he's a big God. And they've turned the Sabbath into something that, ah, it's such a pain, it's such a burden. It's something so much we don't want to do because we want to get on with life. We want to get on with making money. We want to get on with doing what we want to do, not celebrating what God has done. And for Israel, celebrating and observing the Sabbath was their demonstration of their love of God. And with that, it closes. With that, it closes. So that's Isaiah chapter 58. It's a fascinating chapter. It plays into all the rest of Scripture. There's so many ties, tentacles, that go into both passages before and passages after with Jesus. And it all portrays people who are estranged from God by their morality and their religiosity and their piety. What are your comments and questions? Rick? They did incredible things. But the celebration sprang from a relationship of grace through faith. It's because they believed God who he was that it changed the way that they lived. Somebody else? Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.